Our sermon today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 28. Here's the word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be helped by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Thus says the Lord. Friends, good morning. And uh, this Sunday, we're going to be continuing in our series to the book of Acts still. And we're still on chapter 2. And if you remember, we're at the part of the story where the Pentecost just happened, right? God's spirit, God's presence was poured out to God's people in a pretty intense way, right? Jerusalem at the time. And last Sunday, what we saw happen after the event is that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples who was there, he stood up and he started to preach a sermon, right? Last Sunday, we studied the first part of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And today, all we're gonna do is study the second part of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It's a long sermon, so we gotta break it down. Now, now quick recap. Last week, if you remember, in Peter's first point of his sermon, he called Christians everywhere who claim to believe in the forgiveness of sins through the cross, who believe in the gospel, to share that good news of the gospel to everyone. Okay, that's, that's all really Peter's first point. How can you believe in something so amazing and keep it to yourself? And now, in the second point of Peter's sermon, he's sharing the gospel. Okay, so he's doing the very thing that he just told us to do in his first point. And that's really all our passage is about today. It's Peter presenting the gospel to the people who was there, who were there around him. Now, are you allowed to rate which gospel presentation in the Bible you like most? Maybe, I don't know. But this one's up there for me. I really like this one. Why? Because it's bold, but also winsome. It's straightforward, but not like in an ignorant way. It's challenging to the mind, but it also engages the heart. It really is a good gospel presentation. So here's my hope for us today. If you're listening to this and you're a Christian, I hope Peter's gospel presentation here deepens your understanding of the gospel, but also I hope that it'll inform you of how to share the gospel with others. Peter's a good teacher to learn from. And if you're here today listening to this and you're not a Christian, my hope is that this would be a clear presentation for you of what Christianity is really all about. All right, so let's take a look at it. How does the Apostle Peter go about sharing the very first gospel presentation ever presented after the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people at Pentecost? Well, he starts off by saying, when you see Jesus as a promised savior, 
You'll see how elaborate God's plan actually is. And that'll make you gladder than David, who's a king in the Old Testament that we'll talk more about later. So Peter starts off with a simple gospel proclamation, and then he engages the mind, and then he brings it deep into the heart. All right, so let's start with our first point. When you see Jesus as a promised savior. So Peter starts out his gospel presentation <clears throat> with a simple proclamation. Men of Israel, listen, he says in verse 22. And the first thing that comes out of Peter's mouth in order to explain to the people who was there what Christianity is all about is not a list of religious rules. It's not a set of ethical ideas. It's not even a philosophical argument. The very first thing Peter mentioned in order to explain Christianity is a name of a person. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I'm not saying you gotta start every conversation you have with other people by saying Jesus of Nazareth, that'll confuse people. The point here is Peter's claim that Christianity, at the end of the day, is really about a person. Christ is Christianity. The whole of our religion can be summarized in who Jesus is and what he did. So who is Jesus? All right, let's continue. Verse 22, Peter says, he's a man attested or approved. He's a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Okay, that didn't really tell me anything about Jesus. Well, let, let's talk about it. The clue here is in the phrase wonders and signs. Wonders and signs are two words that almost always goes together in the New Testament. It's written 60, 16 times in the New Testament in pair, like together, wonders and signs as one set. And this gives us good insight into who Jesus is. How? Well, let's talk about it. First, wonders. Wonders is a word in the Bible used to describe the times when God works without, beyond, or against the natural law that he set in place. Okay, so remember that time when Jesus made a plant suddenly die and wither, right? The fig, the fig tree, that's a wonder. God in that instance worked beyond the law of time and that fig tree didn't follow the normal lifespan cycle that God has naturally set in place for fig trees. That's a wonder. Remember when Jesus walked on water? That's God working against the law of physics. The water molecules that should have been fragmented enough to normally cause a physical body to sink, it didn't make Jesus sink. That's a wonder. Now, quick, quick side note on wonders. If you don't believe in the existence of a creator that created all of nature and all its laws, then of course these moments in the Bible to you will feel really weird and unreasonable. But if you do believe in a creator through whose creative power has set natural laws in place, who created the concept of time, who created water molecules. If that's your starting point, then it really isn't that big of a stretch to think that this creator can work without, beyond, or against the natural law that he himself has set in place. Now, I don't want to get into a rabbit hole, so that's all I'll say about that, but that's what the Bible claims to be true, that there is a creator who set natural laws in place, and this creator throughout history has at times worked wonders without beyond or against the natural law that he set in place. Now, why does God do that? Why does God, why does God work wonders as a sign? Remember, wonders and signs. Signs of what? Signs that the person who's doing the wonder is someone approved by God. 
That's why miracles happen in the Bible. Think about Elijah in, in, in 1 Kings, right? He burnt up a bull representing the false god Baal, but he burned the bull without using oil or a fire starter. <laughs> and everyone there was like, wow. And God was like, yeah. Was that weird? Did that freak you out? Good. I'm trying to make a point here that Elijah is my guy. I approve him. Listen to him, not to the worshipers of Baal. Remember Moses who did all these crazy things with his staff, with a shepherd's staff, right? And then Pharaoh's uh, magicians tried to copy it, but it was like the counterfeit version and they lost. Why did God do wonders there? He's trying to make a point that Moses is his guy. Listen to him, not to Pharaoh. Miracles in the Bible are not meant to be these one-off magic shows to gather an audience. They are signs, wonders are signs that attest or prove the authenticity of a person and their message as being from God. Okay? Now, does that mean that God still works like that today? No, he doesn't. At least not at all in the same intensity. We at least have to agree on that, right? Why not? Because there's no need for it anymore. God did all these wonders throughout the pro through the prophets in the Old Testament as signs to point to the Savior that is to come. And Peter is saying in verse 22, that promised Savior, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He too did wonders, but after doing them, he didn't point to someone else. He signaled to himself. He did wonders and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but through me. I am the door. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So that's it. That's the first part of Peter's gospel presentation. It's just a simple proclamation of who Jesus is. He's the promised Savior, and no one gets the Father but through him. Now, you know, if you've grown up in church for a while, what Peter just said may seem a bit elementary to you, right? Because if you've been in church for a while, you've probably learned all these different ways about sharing the gospel, right? All these complicated diagrams and apologetic arguments, which are needed and very useful. I personally really get excited about those things. But I wonder sometimes if what Peter's saying here is that less is more. Not all the time, but sometimes I wonder if less is more. Yes, there is a whole philosophical argument to be explained about what Christianity is. Yes, there are alternative worldviews to be debunked. Yes, there's argument from general revelation to deploy really complicated stuff. But at the end of the day, you won't sufficiently explain what Christianity is until you present to people Jesus of Nazareth, our promised Savior who has come to lay his life down for his sheep. That's it. I, uh, I once preached at this really old Presbyterian church, and I remember walking up to the pulpit. It was this rugged old wooden pulpit, you know, and maybe it was all in my head, but it was so old that it felt like I could smell the, the oak wood, you know, just cut off from the tree. It was one of those churches, right? Really eclectic. And carved on the backside of this pulpit, there was this quote. So whoever was preaching that Sunday would kind of see the quote before they preach. And out of all the things that could have been carved on the backside of that wooden pulpit for the preacher to see before his sermon, the people who carved it a long time ago decided to carve in these five words. Good sir, show us Jesus. That's it. 
Show us Jesus. Christianity really is a simple proclamation of who Jesus is and what he did. He is God himself who's come to us in the flesh to die for our sins. It's a simple proclamation. But once you believe in that simple proclamation and you really start to think about it, what it'll do is that it'll open up a whole new perspective about life, a whole view about God, about reality that's actually quite complex, which leads us to our second point. When you see Jesus as a promised savior, you'll see how elaborate God's plan actually is. Okay, so think about that simple claim of the gospel again, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. Simple enough, right? But now take a second, pull back, and think about it. It's a great story, but why did the story have to be this way? You know, out of all the scenarios, out of all the storyline options out there that God could have written for the universe, why did he decide on this one, on the storyline of the cross? Now, now stick with me here. I promise I'll bring it back to the passage and have practical implications at the end. But for now, think about it for a moment. Couldn't God have written another storyline? You know, one with less brokenness and suffering without all this pain, without the pain of the cross? How about the storyline, let's call it, of no creation, where he just doesn't create anything at all. That's one storyline option. You know, how about the storyline of no pain? That's a nice one, right? Where he created everything, but then Genesis 3 never happens, sin never enters the world, and everything stays perfect, right? That's another storyline option. Or the storyline of immediate justice, where God creates everything, and Genesis 3 did happen, sin did come into the world, but then after that, he just completely deletes everything, because that's what sin deserves. He could have written that one. It could have saved a lot of people a lot of headache, right? There are tons of storyline options out there that God could have written, but yet, look at verse 23. Peter says that God chose the storyline of the cross. Verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite plan, meaning that the storyline we're currently in, let's call it the storyline of redemption, the storyline of the cross, whatever you want to call it, it didn't just randomly happen. Peter's saying God, in the beginning of time, like an author starting a new book, had a blank piece of paper before him, so to speak, and he wrote this particular storyline we're in into being. It was his definite plan. Why? Because the storyline that we're in, the storyline of redemption, not the storyline of no creation, not the storyline of no pain, not the storyline of immediate justice, but specifically the storyline of redemption is the storyline that best reveals who God is, that he is good and that he's powerful. And that's why God wrote it. And some of you here may be listening to that and thinking to yourself, good and powerful? You think the storyline that we're in reveals that whoever wrote it is good and powerful? Have you been paying attention to the storyline? You know? Have you specifically read chapters 2020 and 2021? Because they suck. How can a storyline like ours with so much darkness and so much badness reveal the goodness and power of the author? Let's continue in verse 23 again. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Peter says. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. 
Who does Peter blame for the darkness and the badness of the cross? Not God the author, but the people who did it. Now, isn't that weird? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God the author planned the darkness of the cross. But you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. The people who did it was blamed, not God. Now, how does that work? Because this means that God and the people who crucified Jesus had the same plan, right? So they're both evil, right? No, they're not. Why not? Because, yes, they have the same plan, but they had different reasons for doing so. See, the men who crucified Jesus did it for evil reasons. Remember, the Pharisees were jealous because Jesus' followers started to grow a lot, so they, they killed Jesus. The Roman politicians were scared Jesus was going to start a coup with all his followers, so they killed Jesus. The evil men, the Pharisees here and the Roman politicians, did what God planned on doing all along, but with evil intentions. However, why did God do it? Not for evil but so that he could pay for the sins of mankind, for your sins and for mine. You see, they both had the same plan. God meant it for good, and they meant it for evil. Remember Genesis 50, verse 20, when Joseph was thrown into a well by his jealous brothers? That was a, that was a dark part of the storyline, right? But then, if you continue reading, that dark event led to Joseph being the director of resources and operations in Egypt. And because he had that position, he was able to share God's, uh, Egypt's food to starving people at the time during a famine. And then remember what Joseph said at the end of all that, after everything has been said and done, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he said to his brothers who threw him into the well, you know what, in hindsight, it seems like you guys threw me in the well for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many should be kept alive. Same plan, you planned it for evil, God planned it for good. Look, this storyline that we're in, that God planned, verse 23 says, your storyline, it's complex. It's filled with good things and bad things. Many of you have simultaneously experienced the death of a loved one and thought to yourself, this isn't fair. But you've also held your newborn child with joy and asked yourself, what have I ever done to deserve this? You've tasted deep injustices, but also the sweetest mercies. You've cried over people leaving you, but also because others have found you. Your story is a mixture of both music and madness. And what the Bible claims is this, that God planned both Plan both into it. But just like Joseph's well and Jesus's cross, the madness got wrote in only to make the music much more beautiful in the end. And God will hold the people accountable for the madness, right? Peter said, you did it, lawless men. Even though God planned it before the beginning of time for your good. God is good. And he's powerful. What use is a good plan without the power to carry it out? Look at verse 24. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Death, the most powerful weapon the enemy has, couldn't hold Jesus. God is powerful enough to defeat death and use the madness of the cross for good. So imagine what he can do with the madness in your life. It's no competition. One day, Peter's saying here, one day you'll see the pain in your life like Joseph now sees his well. Like Jesus now sees his cross. And you will say, it is well. It is well. You see, the cross, it's a simple proclamation. It's a simple story. But when you actually take time to think about it, it'll unpack this whole complex operation plan that's behind the scenes, revealing also an unbelievably good and powerful God behind that operation plan, behind even the maddest moments in your life. And perhaps that time is right now. I don't know. For you. And if you really believe in this cross and in this operation plan and in this God, you know what it'll do? It'll make you glad. Which leads us to our last point. When you believe that Jesus is the promised Savior, you'll see how elaborate God's plan actually is. And that'll make you gladder than David. Okay, last point of our, of our passage. What does Peter do in the last part of the passage? Well, he quotes a song. A song that was written by a king in the Old Testament named David, found in Psalm chapter 16. And the reason why Peter did that, I think, is because David in Psalm 16 is trying to say what Peter here is saying in Acts chapter 2, but in song form. So, so Peter is explaining it in lecture form, and David is expressing it in poetic form. Now, what's poetry good at doing that lecturers usually aren't as good in doing? Expressing emotion. So Peter wanted to express the emotional affects of believing in the cross and in this elaborate plan God has behind the scene. And in order to do that, he quotes Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, where David writes, I saw the Lord always before me. Always, David said, meaning during the music and the madness. You see, David gets it. He sees the same operation plan behind the scenes that Peter sees. And then look at what believing in that did for David. Look at verse 26. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh dwelled in hope. Believing that God has this elaborate plan where at the end evil will get punished and that somehow the madness will only sweeten the music that will cause us to be glad, meaning happy, that will cause us to be thankful. That's what our tongue's rejoicing is, we're thanking God. And it'll also make us feel peaceful that's what your flesh or your, your body feels like when you have hope, when you're hopeful, when the future seems bright. Happy, thankful, and peaceful. That's what David felt for believing in God's operation plan behind the screens. Okay, but how can believing in this operation plan change your mood like that, like David? Because what affects your emotions is not necessarily the events you're encountering, but it's the storyline you have in your head about the event. Stick with me. Let's say there are three different people looking at the same event. A cat got hit by a car. They'll experience different emotions depending on the storyline going on in their heads about that particular event. Person A, for example, lives in the area and he's seen this cat scratch little children's faces, destroy flower beds, and even ate one of his pet birds one day. This cat, the story, 
in his head is a menace to society and needs to go. That's his storyline. So when he sees his dead cat, he feels glad and happy. Person B, however, doesn't live in that area. She's just simply passing by. She doesn't know this cat's a menace. In fact, she happens to really love cats. Cats has been a huge part in her life since she was a kid. That's her storyline. So when she saw this dead cat, she felt not happy, but sad. Person C has no interest in cats. He's too busy to be bothered by neighborhood drama, much less one caused by a cat. So when he sees his dead cat, the narrative he sees is that nothing significant happened and he doesn't really feel anything. Different emotional responses to the same event, depending on the storyline you're seeing that event through. You know, Psalm 16, the one that David wrote, the one that Peter quotes at the end of this passage, it was actually a psalm that came out of a dark period of David's life. In the very first verse of, of Psalm 16, David asked God to preserve his life. He was, he was struggling, he was suffering. Now we don't know exactly what was going on in David's life at the time, but here are a few events to choose from. It was written when his employer, Saul, wanted him dead, or when one of his sons passed away, or when his other son wanted to kill him for the throne. Choose one, you know, and many others that you could choose from. David's life was filled with madness, but he was glad, thankful, and peaceful. Why? because he saw those events with the vantage point of God's storyline. He knew there's an elaborate plan here, a complex system set in place by good and powerful God. So he was glad even when things were mad. Now, th this doesn't mean that if you see life from God's vantage point, you're just gonna be happy all the time, no. Jesus knew the plan, right? But yet he cried when Lazarus died. Why? He was going to raise him up in like two minutes. Why did he cry? Because when you see life from God's vantage point, you'll view life through God's lenses, and God hates death. So Jesus, having God's vantage point, had a physical revulsion. He reacted emotionally to death in the same way that God would, with anger and hatred and sadness. Seeing the plan, seeing life through God's vantage point, won't make you happy all the time, it shouldn't, okay? There are plenty of things God would be sad about in the world, but what it should do is inform the way you view suffering and at times cause you to have this kind of joy even amidst your sufferings that the world can't make sense of because they don't have the same vantage point that you do. Peter was singing when he was in prison. Why? He had a particular vantage point that caused him to react that way to that event. What was it that C.S. Lewis said? I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. When you take the time to think about it, the simple proclamation of the gospel will reveal the complex, elaborate plan God has. And when you start to see everything through that vantage point, it'll give you the ability to be glad, even through the madness. And that's what Peter's trying to express here by quoting David's psalm. Now, there's one more thing that I do want to point out in Peter's quoting of Psalm 16. There's something Peter left out from David's psalm. The, um, the, quote that, the, the, the song that Peter quoted here was actually stanza, and that stanza actually starts in verse 7 to verse 11. But Peter, as he was quoting David, skipped verse 7. He left verse 7 out. And he started in verse 8 to 11. And, and I think by leaving verse 7 out, Peter is really saying a lot. 
Because if you read Psalm chapter 16, verse 7, it's actually all about God's law. And, and the reason why David felt all this confidence that God is always before him, God's at his right hand, that you know God will never leave him to perish, is because God's law, God's commandments, was, was before him, before David. He knew it, he observed it, he obeyed it, he followed it as best as he can, and that's why he was confident that God is with him, and that at the end of the day, God won't abandon him, because God's laws are with him. But Peter decides to not say verse 7. He skips it. Why? Because we have a greater vantage point than David, don't we? We've seen God's presence, but not mainly through God's laws. We've seen God's presence in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, which is his first point. God's presence came to his people on Mount Sinai by giving them the Ten Commandments. But God's presence came to us in the New Testament in a person, and he didn't bring with him stone tablets. He came carrying a cross to die for our sins, for our madness. You know, it's funny when Peter said to the people there, you crucified Jesus. They were probably really confused because they were traveling (laughs) to Jerusalem for a particular celebration that was happening at the time, and they're probably thinking, uh, no, I didn't. The Pharisees did. The Roman soldiers did. Yes, Peter would have responded, but you crucified him. It was your chance that brought him there. And if you weren't chanting for Jesus to be crucified, it was your sins that held him there. You crucified the King of glory. You brought the madness in. I did. Do you believe that? That you and I are not just victims of the madness, we're the perpetrators of it. But yet God took all of that madness upon himself. Why? So that we can hear the music. We who live on this side of the cross have a greater vantage point than David, and the music should be louder. And why wouldn't that cause our hearts, therefore, to be gladder? So that was it. That's Peter's gospel proclamation. It's simple, but it challenges the mind and it engages the heart. If you're a Christian wanting to learn how to share the gospel, those are three really good principles to think about. Make it simple, make it engaging to the mind, but also effective to the heart. And if you're listening to this today and you're not a Christian, and you're hearing this gospel here for the first time, I hope you see it's a simple claim that the Bible makes, that there is no way you can get good with God unless you've allowed Jesus of Nazareth to take all of your madness upon himself, all of your sin upon himself. And that's not an unreasonable storyline. It's not. In fact, it's the only one that can show us just how good and powerful God is. That's why he wrote it. That's why it was a definite plan. And if you believe in that definite plan, it'll give you a vantage point to be grateful for the music in your life because you know God never owed you those tunes. But also, it'll make you hopeful for the madness in your life that was only written in to somehow make the music sweeter in the end. This is the path of life. Peter ends in verse 28 by saying, 
May you be glad by it. Let's pray. Father, what a simple proclamation the gospel is. Even babes can understand that we're sinners and that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. But yet what a complex, elaborate plan it reveals behind the scenes and what a good and powerful God it reveals as well. I pray, Father, that this Christian worldview would seep so much into our minds and hearts and souls and bodies in such a way that we would view all of life through it and it would cause us to be glad, even through the madness. May you be glorified by calling people to yourself through the simple declaration of the gospel. And may you grow them in true shalom as they more and more live their lives and walk their days with the lenses of the gospel on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.